Welcome to the Geek Therapy Podcast. This is Josue Cardona. Um, with me today is Dr. Patrick O'Connor. He is a adjunct professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. He's also the creator of Comicspedia, a frequent contributor to the podcast. And um, he's here today because he is doing something a little crazy. He's actually going to be teaching a course called Geek Culture in Therapy at the Chicago School. And I really, really wanted to pick his brain about that and um, have all of you listen to him talk about why he would do such a thing and um, what he expects to to uh, happen with this course. So, Dr. O'Connor, welcome back. Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about where this idea came from and what exactly is your plan with this class? Well, the idea came from just the recognition that I think we're in, uh, the times we're in, is essentially a, a geek culture renaissance, right? We've got this resurgence of geek culture coming back and you see it everywhere from the popularity of a show like The Big Bang Theory to uh, the, the rising sales figures of comic books to video game numbers just, just blowing up both in sales as well as in research. And I think it's something that as therapists and psychologists, as, as people are getting into the helping professions, that they need to know more about video games and comic books. They need to know about uh, more artifacts and geek culture, about Lord of the Rings and uh, the hero's journey and and everything out there that's already that's already been around for decades that just hasn't been necessarily applied to a course like this uh it just so i i want to do whatever i can to help future therapists to connect with geek culture and to recognize the the potential for its utility in sessions okay so i want to pick on two things that you just said so first of all who who can take this course this is going to be taught at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology in the clinical PsyD department. So uh, we have two main tracks. There are some other specializations too, but we have the generalist and the child and adolescent track. And uh, I'll be pulling students from, uh, from both tracks this fall. And so it's uh, going to be students who are typically in their second or third year of the PsyD program. So they'll likely have their uh, master's degree already um, or be just about to complete it along the way to their clinical PsyD. And uh, they'll already have taken courses on statistics, basic intervention, diversity, interviewing skills. They'll be on assessment practicum, in therapy practicum. Uh, they'll be working with clients and beginning their training already. And, uh, and then they get to take a course like this and learn about video games, comic books, and, and more. So, but that leaves a lot of people out also. I mean, I know this is the first time that the, the class is given. Do you think it might expand later to include some of the other helping professions? I hope so. Yeah, I, uh, I've got some interest from the the MAC department, which is the Master of Arts in Clinical Counseling um, at the Chicago School, uh, when some of the professors there heard that I was going to be teaching this in clinical PsyD, they asked if I could first come down and, and teach uh, or lead a, a, um, like a colloquium on it, kind of a, you know, a seminar or kind of a one-shot, if you will, kind of you know, discussion or panel about it, and then see if we can turn it into a course for them. Um, it's something that, that I have gotten quite a bit of positive feedback and excitement about from people who've seen what the description is, what the plan is, what the syllabus looks like. Um, it, it definitely seems to be getting some interest from other areas as well. But right now, I just want to get this kind of pilot you know, going, this, this one uh, initial phase going so that uh, I can see how the students respond, what their feedback is, what they find to be helpful, what maybe they find needs a little bit of improvement, and then after that, I, I'll absolutely be looking to see who else may be interested in in, uh, uh, in bringing a course like this to their, to their program. And then, so the other thing that you said at the beginning that caught my attention was that you said that people need to know this information. Um, why do you think people need to know this? Well, it's, I, I guess I'll go back to a, a experience I had when I was shopping around ideas for my dissertation. So uh, when I was going through the, the PsyD department, or sorry, the PsyD program myself at the Chicago School, I had this idea that just a simple idea, I wanted to uh, you know, involve video games in my dissertation somehow. The original idea was actually to see if uh, playing a game like The Sims, well in this case The Sims 2, uh, the sequel, that if, uh, if kids playing The Sims 2 uh, had any change in 
um, family dynamics, like uh, you know handle, how they handle conflict or how they um, interact with their parents or whether it's foster parents or, or biological parents. Um, does playing a game kind of a simulation with uh, these set kind of ways of socializing with people, does it influence their family relationships? And uh, so I took this idea and I went around and I was like, okay, I'll find some professors to see who knows about video games. Um, it was kind of difficult to find any professors who knew anything about video games. And this isn't at all like a slight on the Chicago school or the department or anything like that. It's just to be expected, it, apparently, because even in my training and working with various psychologists over the years, it's, I've, you know, it's, a, it's definitely more the exception um, to find uh, a psychologist who actually knows anything about video game research. So I took this around and, and started shopping the idea around. And in, the question that kept coming up was, what is The Sims? Like, I don't know. I've never heard of that. And this is the this at the time was the sequel to the best-selling PC game of all time. I mean, you know, tens of millions of copies sold. So this was kind of shocking to me. So I just turned it more into the the dissertation, more into uh, just a, a, a slim volume of information of of um, kind of a collection of the key studies of uh, of video games over the last uh, few decades that really highlight where we're at in terms of video game research so that psychologists can apply that to their practice of knowing, you know, answering the question, are violent video games harmful for clients? Uh, does video game addiction exist? What about uh, how we assume the, the um, identity of the characters that we play? Um, it's something that I think plays a huge, huge role in the lives of our clients and that psychologists need to know the answers to those questions when their parents are coming in and saying, hey, my kid is playing Grand Theft Auto. Uh, he's 14 years old. He sometimes talks back. He gets like B's or C's in, in school. Should I be concerned? A psychologist who doesn't know anything about the uh, research on it or uh, doesn't even play the game him or herself is at a huge disadvantage to suddenly be uh, giving advice or, or speaking from any level of expertise about the game. So that's just one example on the video game side. And the same goes for just about any other uh, aspect of, of geek culture that I've found, whether, again, superheroes or uh, Star Wars or, or anything like that. So I'm just trying to get um, therapists, psychologists on board with, with recognizing the importance of this in the clients, in the populations that we serve. Yeah, and I mean, I think we've talked about that on this show tons of times. You know, the Avengers made a billion dollars. Um, we've talked video game statistics of most households um, touch video games in some way. Everybody watches TV. And yeah, what's popular, that's, that's our client's frame of reference. And I know that different uh, clinicians work in different ways, but at least, um, you know, I always ask people what they're into, whether they're children or they're adults. And, and what they're into, I mean, that's important to them. And that's the language that, that uh, they speak right? It's their, their point of reference, their framework. And, and to not know that, I think, is to not understand the client. Right, exactly. There's, there's on the one hand, it can be very beneficial to the therapeutic relationship to ask a client to explain why something is important to them, right? You know, tell me why you connect with this. Why do you like it? Um, how often do you play it? And to, and to be inquisitive and to, you know, help get to the kind of the perspective of the client. But um, you're you're already kind of halfway there, at least if you know the research or if you play it yourself or experiencing it yourself. I mean, you know, my experience of a comic book is going to be very different from somebody else's experience of the exact same comic book. But at least we've had that shared experience in the past and we can start comparing and contrasting our own experiences as opposed to me having to ask, can you tell me the story of that? You know, I don't, I've never read Watchmen. Can you tell me who this Rorschach guy is? You know, cause I, I know that name, but in a different context. And what about this Dr. Manhattan dude? Who's that? And what does he do? If you at least know the story beforehand, you can start talking about some of the more subtle dynamics and, and why they enjoy the story, why they connect with uh, some of the darker elements of it and kind of the twisted nature of, of, uh, of having a, a you know, um, a, a demigod, you know, like superhero in, in, uh, in, in our world, in our presence. Um, yeah, so it's just stuff our clients connect with already and we need to be able to speak the language before they walk in the door. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to make it very clear that you and I have not read every comic book that exists. We have not watched every movie. 
I know you've played every video game ever. Ever, made. yes, ever made. Um, and that's something that we struggle with, I think, sometimes. But I think that's why it's so important to at least know which are the most popular. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that if uh, uh, and you know, I know you didn't ask for this, but if there's uh, one little bit of advice I could pass along to psychologists today is to be familiar with kind of. Uh, you know, maybe five or ten superheroes just to know their basic stories. I mean, again, most of us know them already, but, you know, just uh, be, if you can even speak knowingly a little bit and use the movies as a reference, don't even have to use the comic books, um, about who Spider-Man is and who, how he got his powers or who Batman is and and uh, what was the big life-changing moment that, that uh, sent him to, you know, become the Batman, um, that... You know, getting to know five or ten of the big players, as well as uh, you know, knowing some of the games, the the popular games today. Um, that yeah, it's uh, just you just got to know what your what your clients are into and uh, and what they what they love to do. And uh, be, and before we go into depth um, on the actual syllabus and the actual um, information that you'll be teaching in this course, um, I, I I I'm also going to give a little bit of. Uh, suggestion right mm -hmm. um a lot of clinicians and and i mean I, I know this from from my own personal experience you'll bring certain things up and people will either roll their eyes at you or like you know their head you know kind of tilts off to the side and they, they don't they have no idea what you're talking about and they're kind of dismissive mm -hmm. you know so i uh, my hope is that you know with again with this podcast and with your class is that people will just be more open and and by having a general idea, they'll be uh, again not dismissive and and hopefully en embrace that in their clients. If they bring it up, then then you know go with it and see and see where it goes. And I think I think your class will will really help clinicians who don't know a lot about it um, to just open you know be really open to it. And for people who maybe are geeks already and they love this stuff just to get a better idea of how powerful it can be to really embrace it and use it mm -hmm. in, in therapy. Sure. All right. So, so what, what is the class about? Like, how does it start? Um, what's the first thing that people are going to learn in this class or be tested on or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we're going to talk a bit about geek culture in general. We're going to look, we're going to look at um, definitions of geek culture. And, and that's something that everybody's got their own definition of. Uh, Simon Pegg uh, has a quote that being a geek means never having to play it cool about how much you like something, right? So we've got something that, uh, you know, he speaks to the passion side of things and how um, it's about owning it and about being proud. Uh, my own personal definition of, geek, of, uh, of a geek is a person who makes a conscious effort to develop his or her knowledge about an interest. That I, I'm a little bit more inclusive about it. So we've got Simon Pegg, who uh, you know is is more about kind of the pride side of things and kind of the emotional aspect. Um, I, I tend to be a little bit more inclusive about it, uh, just in that you can be a sports geek, you can be uh, a Doctor Who geek, you can be uh, a fashion geek, a psychology geek, uh, you know, whatever it is. If that if there's something that you're making a conscious effort to develop your knowledge about that thing and just an interest. It doesn't have to be something that you're getting paid to do or has anything to do with your job. Um, I started out as a psych geek when I was younger before I decided on it for a career. I was interested in something else. and uh, and then, But I was always like reading psychology books on the side because it was so fascinating. And then I turned that into something that I could uh, actually work towards and, and uh, develop a career out of. So um, any, I think anybody can be a geek uh, just as long as they've got that one thing that they're making a conscious effort of to to kind of develop that knowledge. And so we talk about geek culture. We talk about what it is. We talk a little bit about the millennial generation um, and kind of enhancing your geek speak that uh, you know, for people who are uh, born between roughly like 1982 and 2000, they fall into the millennial generation and they've got some interesting little uh, uh, you know tidbits about that generation that's different from the previous ones um, regarding how close they are to families and how much they're much more uh, achievement focused and, and success driven. Um, it's a really wonderful, interesting generation and how that connects with geek culture is really kind of a fascinating intersection. So that's kind of the very beginning of the course, the first couple of weeks that we'll be addressing. So, but the, so the definition that the class really um, embraces though, is not that general, very open, um, you can be passionate or into anything, 
right? It's more it's a more specific than that. You're right that it's not going to be uh, the all inclusive aspect of it. It's going to be more about uh, I hate to say it, but kind of the stereotypical geek stuff. It's it's going to be what we think of you know when we think of a, a geek where you've got the um, you know the superhero stuff, video games as I keep mentioning, um, Harry Potter, Star Wars, um, Star Trek things like that. And the reason why I'm focusing on that is because, um, first of all, many of these stories and many of these, uh, much of the research around this has been around for several decades. And again, despite it not being rigorously integrated into a a course in formal education, um, you know, that video games have been around for a better part of 40 years. Um, uh, You know, Doctor Who uh, just as long uh, or a little longer you know, Harry Potter is a bit, 50th anniversary, of course. Um, Harry Potter is a, a bit of the newer, on the newer side, and Star Wars, we're coming up on 40 years soon. So, uh, uh, but superheroes, 75 years for Superman this year. So it's it's this stuff has this stuff has been around, but I think the reason why I the reason why I want to focus on these aspects though specifically is because when when you look at something that is expressed in its purest form, it really illustrates the importance and the power of that thing. That when we can talk about people, just going back to the Simon Pegg quote, that when we can find people who are passionate about things and developing this knowledge about this interest, despite what other people think, that you don't have to play it cool because, you know what, it's awesome that you love that thing and that you want to keep learning about it and keep kind of working at developing that knowledge for that TV show or that book or whatever it is. Um, That geeks in the kind of stereotypical traditional sense really embody that. And so we, I, I think we really need to look at that and you'll see it then in the course in its purest form, and you can start to recognize those aspects in other people. You can see how it kind of it has a bit of a rippling effect into other uh, other areas, other um, you know other other topics of interest. Okay, so what kind? What is the reading material for for this course? It's the reading is a little bit heavy because I got some resistance from the department um, saying that they thought it sounded like a one hour course, one credit hour course. And I've gotten some presentations and stuff. Um, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that in this podcast that um, things that the students are going to be taking class time to talk about. And I thought that with, uh, you know, with, with students taking some of the time throughout the semester, uh, and it's a one hour course, I got 50 minutes. I, I mean, we'll, the ball won't even get rolling. We'll still be looking at it basically parked in the garage. So, uh, which is a great analogy. Um, but, uh, I wanted it to, I, so I kind of beefed it up so that it could hopefully be taken more seriously and, and they could recognize that more time is needed to really cover uh, to appropriately cover the vast amount of research and work and and uh, and um, literature that's already been established on on these topics, so um, I've got uh, a handful of required texts. They'll be reading uh, a book from Lawrence Rubin, who I know you've had as a guest on the Geek Therapy podcast in the past. Episode fifteen. It's fantastic. Awesome. Listen to it. Uh, the uh, it's called Using Superheroes in Counseling and Play Therapy. That's going to be kind of the centerpiece of the uh, the the course. Um, also got a great book from Will Brooker. Um, he's a, a, an academic, a professor out at Kingston University in the UK, and uh, he's a, a sort of a socio-cultural historian um, on, on media, on film and media studies. Um, it's called Batman Unmasked, Analyzing a, cult- a Cultural Icon. Um, he, he takes apart, he's known as Dr. Batman, and uh, so Will Brooker uh, kind of picks apart um Batman and his relevance throughout uh, various points of of uh, the world's culture, just throughout history. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful book for for putting Batman into cultural context. A um, couple more books. One is um, the uses of enchantment, the meaning and importance of fairy tales from Bruno Bettelheim. It's a child psychologist who uh, writes on the importance of fairy tales and how we need it to uh, we need to instill imagination into kids and really kind of make sure that they're keeping up with their own childhood and not letting it escape to them and transforming into uh, adults too soon that we need imagination we need creativity Um, it serves a great function in childhood and it continues to be important as we grow older and fairy tales and myths and and these kinds of stories are exactly those stories that really foster that and lastly uh, a great companion text the Bettelheim book is uh, the hero with a thousand faces uh, by Joseph Campbell. It's a collection of his works, basically 
outlining the hero's journey, which uh, the students will be reading kind of, despite it's a big book, be reading probably 300 pages in, in a matter of like a month in addition to other texts and stuff. So I mean, for, uh, for at least for one course, it's quite a bit of reading um, early on. I think we've got close to a thousand pages they'll be reading throughout the course of the semester. And, uh, uh, but in Campbell's book, um, Hero with a Thousand Faces, he details the uh, the hero's journey and every stage that we see in uh, in myths that a hero goes through to uh, um, to go through that journey to to you know from departing to kind of this initiation phase and then kind of returning from that journey and bringing uh, the the prize and bringing the treasure home to uh, to his homeland um, by by getting into that uh, students will be able to recognize that. Uh, the hero's story is everywhere in modern storytelling. We see it in comic books, we see it in video games, we see it in TV shows and all over. And students then can start recognizing uh, potential for for utility of new stories as they emerge um, when they have clients in therapy who are connecting with those new stories. Yeah, and I think you've illustrated by from that list of books that this is not um, pathologizing geek culture, this is not analyzing geek culture, this is using the things that are popular um, with clients. Oh yeah, which is yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, this is not. Um, uh, and I and I've gotten that that look. Uh, I, I maybe I need to rethink of the uh, the the title of the course or how I talk about geek therapy because <laughs> I, I it does happen often, but I do sometimes get that look from people. Uh, uh, I went to a. Um, I also teach at community college and uh, part time, and I went in there. Uh, to a, an English professor, and I saw that he runs like a little sci-fi club, and he has some really cool kind of geek stuff going on at that school, and uh, and I want to see if we can collaborate. And I told him how I do this thing, kind of involving you know, kind of like geek therapy and how uh, you can use comics and whatnot. But before I got to the details of it, I just said something about how I love, uh, you know, uh, I love like geek therapy and and. Uh, uh, and all that, and and he and he looked at me kind of like almost like he was under attack, I think. And I wonder if he misunderstood me to say that I I'm trying to like convert geeks to be normal or something, you know, like that I was uh, like threatening him and saying I'm going to, you know, take this thing that you love and I'm 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 trying to work it all out of people. And I'm like, no, it couldn't be further from the truth. I I'm trying to embrace it. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Or 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 that geeks need therapy. Right. right? That's, no. that's not the point. Exactly. Yeah. No. This isn't trying to. Um, yeah. Assume that if you're a geek that you need uh, you need help or anything like that. It's it's using what you love. Um, to uh, to reach reach clients on a on a different level and to uh, um, and find like fun ways to to get them excited about the therapeutic process. Everybody has this idea of what therapy is and what it looks like, whether it's accurate or not. And you'd be surprised at how um, how wonderful the clients respond to uh, you know to bringing geek cult well, I shouldn't say you you wouldn't be surprised, but some of your listeners may be surprised. At, uh, at how uh, excited clients get when you can start speaking about that language and say, hey, maybe let's read some comics in therapy today and kind of talk about some of the, the deeper issues that are going on in there. Or, uh, or you know, maybe we could play some video games in a social skills group and see how they interact with each other in cooperative or competitive games. Um, all these tools are out there and people just aren't using them even though the research suggests that it works. Well, even, and, and I mean, if you let the client speak, that's what they're going to talk about, mm -hmm. you know. And like we said before, this is this is what they know. Why not use that? Exactly. What about video games? You didn't mention any reading on um, video games because sure. I know that's a big part of the course, also. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to spend um, roughly three weeks of the uh, uh, of the semester talking about uh, video game addiction, violent video games, um, video game just research, kind of broadly, but also a little bit of like tabletop games and. And how you can use uh, board games or card games to also um, reach clients in unique ways, whether it's in group or individual sessions. Uh, but for video games specifically, students will have uh, roughly ten or twelve uh, journal articles that they'll be reading on, uh, uh, you know, the research behind that. Um, some of the big ones, the one of the most cited, if not the most cited, uh, article on violence in video games is from Anderson and Bushman. In um, uh, there's a 2000 uh, I don't have it in front of me. There was a 2001 uh, publication, I believe, from them, and then they updated it in 2010. They'll be reading the 2010 uh, edition, which is a, a, a meta-analysis of 
the effects of video game, violent video games on aggression, empathy, and pro-social behavior. Um, they've got like 130,000 participants that they looked at in this meta-analysis and 130 studies all around the world. And, uh, and they came to a conclusion that, oh, guess what? Violent video games, they do make people a little bit more aggressive. How little? Extremely little. Like really, really tiny, itty-bitty bit little. Um, so, but they'll get... Is that a direct quote from the article? Yes, that is their conclusion. Uh, it's teeny <laughs> weeny. I don't even remember what I said. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, They'll be reading, uh, you know, studies like that though. For the ones that get cited really heavily and saying, "Yeah, look, it's definitive. It's showing that it affects them," but they're ignoring the numbers and the results, the actual statistics part of it that says it actually doesn't affect them very much at all. Like the answer is yes. If you have to say yes or no, the answer is yes. It does affect them, but you look at the effect size. You look at how much it actually moved people on uh, uh, on a bell curve, and it's it's hardly at all. So. Um, that's going to be a really interesting week. Um, that's a conversation I, I want to have on the show, and I haven't, I haven't done it yet. But um, yeah, the way that people interpret that data and the new data that keeps coming out is very, very, very interesting. So that's going to mm-hmm. be a great, uh, a great discussion in, in class that that week. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I, I'm really looking forward to see how the students respond to it, and uh, and I contrast it with a, a great study from um, uh, from Ferguson in 2007. Uh, called uh, Evidence for Publication Bias in Video Game Violence Affects Literature. Um, I know it's a mouthful, but uh, for those of you out there listening and they want to you know, look it up, go ahead. Um, but uh, in short, he takes uh, several different statistical methods to uh, determine that there's a publication bias in, um, in, in psych literature, or I'm sorry, uh, psych journals that is um, uh, purposely publishing more video game studies that that show that violence has an effect on a person, that a violent video game has an effect on a player, um, despite all these other studies that are being submitted and getting turned away that are proving and showing that there is no effect. Um, that if, if you're going to have uh, all these studies coming in saying that there is an effect, your chances of getting published are a lot better than if you say, you know, even though it's just as scientifically valid to say, you know what, I found nothing. That's great. We need to he- we need to hear those sto- those uh, those studies. Read about them. Um, there's a publication bias out there. So we've got uh, yeah. Just this just this week, um, I saw different articles, different uh, media outlets referring to the same uh, group of studies, and one of them called it, um, you know, video games affect impulse control. Like they reduce impulse control, but others will cite it as as um, having to do with like fight or flight response type of thing, right? And then again, it's just the way they're interpreting it and the way they're spinning it is is you can tell that there's a definite bias. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and there's there's one study that uh, it's not required reading, but I'll definitely be talking about it. Um, this uh, this author Nick Yee came out with a, a wonderful study. Uh, basically surveying uh, 30,000 people who play MMORPGs, massively multiplayer online role-playing games. Uh, the, those, you know, like World of Warcraft um, style games where, uh, you know, where people play online with, you know, millions of other people, uh, usually thousands on the same server, and all play together, sometimes compete in, in player versus player combat and things like that. And, uh, and then showing how, what are the demographics and what are the backgrounds of some of these people and how do they connect with one another and how important are these online relationships that people are, are forming with one another. It's an absolutely awesome, awesome study that, uh, that really illustrates so much about online relationships that we form in, you know, based on play and competition um, in these virtual worlds. Uh, so yeah, the, the whole video game side, of the course, even though it's only three weeks, I mean, I got to get as much in as I can this one semester that I'm that you know that I got. Um, it's uh, the, I'm again super excited to hear uh, how the students are are uh, um, you know understanding and reacting to some of the uh, established literature from the last uh, uh, five or ten years. I'm I'm curious about the the how literate your students will be on video games because in general clinicians aren't very at least in my experience, are not very literate in terms of technology, period. And I think video games is a very important part of that. You can't, you can't separate um, video games from technology and social media and all that. I think it, it, it's all lumped together. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think my experience so far in, in teaching uh, at 
several courses at the Chicago School already, is that there are quite a few students, thankfully, who are into video games or have at least a, a kind of basic familiarity with them. Uh, because, you know, as, uh, as students come in on kind of a younger, you know, a younger than us age, um, video games have been around for greater portions of their lives than they have been for even our generation a few years ahead or, uh, or in generations prior, you know, to us, uh, 20, 30 years before us. Um, you know, you're going to have students coming in who may be 24 years old or so. Uh, today, was that? You're looking at 1989. Um, any, when you're born, the NES has already been out for a few years. And, uh, you know, SNES and Sega are just right around the corner by the time you can get, you know, grab your first controller. Uh, that's, that speaks volumes about the popularity of video games throughout your entire lifetime. So in my experience, I've seen quite a few students who are already kind of at least basically literate about video games. And again, just another reason why a course like this needs to be taught because we need to be connected with students and their interests as well and what they want to bring into their work. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Um, that is so true. I, I We always talk about speaking um, the the client's language. But a big part of this is also, if this is something that you know, then those are the clients that you you will be the, the, the most help to. Those are the people you, you'll be able to have the most impact with. If you know this and your clients know this, then you speak the same language and, and it'll be great. Right. Think about, think you're, you're, uh, you're a parent, you've got uh, a, a, 10 year old, a 10 year old boy, um, maybe you're, uh, you know, you're 38 years old or so. Um, so in, in your lifetime, uh, we go back to 1975, and, uh, you know, it's, it takes a good like 10 years or so or 11 years before the NES comes out and it makes a big splash. But I mean, you're kind of in, in, you know, approaching middle school and maybe it gets popular, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it's really popular, but it reaches a broad range of players. So there's still a good chance that you've managed to avoid video games. It just never got to be your thing. It's something that kind of like those nerds do, you know, um, throughout the, the 80s and the early 90s and stuff. So you managed to kind of bypass it. But now you've got a kid who 10 years ago in 2003, uh, we were, what, somewhere in the middle of, uh, of PS2 and uh, PlayStation 2 or the original Xbox. Um, video games have been around for your child's life and, and been hugely popular. Uh, video game research is booming and uh, legislation is being considered, although thankfully not passed, on uh, limiting the, the access to video games for minors. Um, it's, it, it's become a huge, huge phenomenon. And uh, now you've got your 10-year-old who just can't get off the damn thing. You know, they're playing games all the time and it seems like their schoolwork is suffering. So you want to go to a psychologist. You want to go to somebody who, uh, who can help you maybe get over some of the, uh, the talking back that you've got with your kid. You know, some of the symptoms are going to sound really familiar to a lot of psychologists. We've got talking back, uh, poor school grades, uh, maybe inattention, things like that. A lot of people can work with that. So who are you going to go to, though, as the parent? Are you going to go to somebody who maybe get a good recommendation? Um, they uh, you ask how they do, you know, who they work with. And they say they work with kids, and that you know they work with defiant kids and things like that. Uh, your other referral comes like this person is great with kids. You know why? Because he's got an Xbox in his office. They have like video games in the waiting room. They got comic books in the waiting room, and uh, you know what? And I see them talk about video games. They give talks at our school about parental controls and what games their kids should be playing at what age based on the violence content and the maturity of their kids. Which therapist are you going to send your kid to? You know, it's to me, it just makes sense. You're going to want to find somebody who can speak the language and see both the kid's perspective as well as your own, right? Because if we're, if psychologists, by the time they get, they get access to your kid, they're already going to be adults. They're already going to have a level of maturity and an understanding, a professional understanding of how to address inattention, how to address uh, defiance and, and all of that. They're going to be trained in that. But to get somebody who also values video games and knows them and, and can see the utility of them, but also recognize the, the limitations of them, that's going to be your expert right there that you want to go to. And we need more of those experts in the field. Um, in the episode with Dr. Rubin, I asked him about how he decorated his office. And he talks about how, you know, he decorates his office because it's not only for his clients, it's mostly for him. He wants to be comfortable in the work that he does. Um, and and I think this applies to, to what we're talking about right now. If this is something that you're not interested in and, and you're not comfortable with, then I think the opposite is also true. 
then if a kid, um, if this is something that's really important to a kid, again, don't be dismissive of, dismissive of it, but also think about referring the client out to somebody who can speak the language, who does know um, how to work within that framework. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so let's get back to the to the syllabus. You talked about at the beginning, it's um, you're going to define geek culture. You talked about millennial generations. So kind of take us um, week by week uh, what topics are going to be covered. Sure, yeah. So uh, week three, we talk about um, making the jump from books to movies using Lord of the Rings as a case example, looking at a bit about how uh, what it's like to consume uh, geek stories or, or hero stories in um, – in, in books versus on the screen and what the research says about uh, storytelling in books versus storytelling on, on screen or, or um, and whatnot. Um, but most importantly, along with these week-to-week, um, the students will be reading, again, the, the book The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell and, uh, and, and learning bit by bit about the hero's journey. So during this week and the next week, um, which is Harry Potter and today's geek kind of discussing, uh, you know, a new, again, part of the contributing factor to, to the resurgence of geek culture, having such a huge story in both uh, book form and film version that are both wildly successful and how that contributes to this kind of passion and interest in, in magic and kind of thinking about fantastical things and letting your imagination, uh, you know, what, what a concept actually like run wild and, and to have fun with that. So we're looking at Lord of the Rings, we're looking at Harry Potter, uh, and all the while you're learning about the hero's journey and uh, how a hero will uh, a hero story has looked in um, in classic mythology from thousands of years ago to uh, how relevant it is and, and still absolutely pertinent and and uh, easily discoverable in today's stories. Um, the next week after that, we have uh, 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 May the Force Be With You, Star Wars and Identity Development. Um, can't have a, a geek class without talking about Star Wars, of course. In the Rubin book, he's got a great chapter called Luke, I Am Your Father, a clinical application of the Star Wars adoption narrative. And it's from Lawrence Rubin himself. And he, uh, and he, he looks at Star Wars and how, uh, how um, relevant it is to uh, the adoption kind of experience and, and how... Uh, uh, Luke Skywalker um, goes through this kind of life experiencing the world as he, as he believes it on the one hand and then having this big revelation later and what that says about a person and how you form your identity. So we'll be looking at, um, at identity and Star Wars in that week. Um, then we progress to Doctor Who and Star Trek, television's reinforcement of the geek narrative. Uh, what happens when you actually get new stories, like hour-long stories every week that uh, uh, you know about your favorite characters and, and kind of thinking in these fantastical ways, um, and you get to have something to share with your family and friends in your home. You know, you get to sit there with mom and dad or your siblings, and or maybe you can have your pals over and friends, and all get to experience that story and then talk, you know, talk about it afterwards. Or uh, even as adults that you watch and you go to, to work the next day. Yeah, did you see that episode last night? Oh, my God, that was amazing. Um, you get to experience the, the stories uh, with much greater regularity than like a, a movie or a book. Uh, then we transition into the, the superhero uh, section. Um, from uh, uh, roughly week seven until um, ten or so, nine or ten, We'll be looking at uh, at superheroes, looking at superheroes as, as a modern myth, um, the cultural relevance of Batman, and uh, conducting therapy in Gotham City, how Gotham's heroes can teach us how to change. Um, and during those two Batman weeks, we'll be looking a lot at Will Brooker's book, um, again, at the, the cultural relevance of Batman over time, over the last um, uh, several generations, and uh, some of his, the, the concerns that were raised about Batman uh, in the 50s. And... Um, then we'll cover bibliotherapy using comic books and therapy, and that's my one week that I talk all about Comicspedia and uh, and how I have this uh, this database that basically aims to to help therapists bring comic books into therapy and to discover the stories that their clients can ultimately connect with. Um, from there, we move on to uh, gaming, kind of broadly, gaming of the video and card varieties. Looking at video games, looking at tabletop games, um, we'll uh, look at, at cooperative games like uh, Castle Panic. It's a great cooperative uh, board game, and we'll also look at uh, at a video game, a video game activity that I like to use in uh, social skills groups for for teens. Uh, just to, as a brief description, it's called Controllers Down, and 
what happens in this game or in this activity is uh, we load up the Mario Kart game on Wii, uh, we get the kids uh, all playing, you get four players at once, and they're playing Mario Kart, and when one of the uh, group facilitators says controller's down, you've got to put your controller down on the table and and not pause the game. Uh, it's it's like hell for the kids. Just, you know, put it down and to watch their, you know, go first, second, third, fourth, fifth, dropping in places because all all the computer guys are passing them. After, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 seconds, we say, okay, resume, pick up, and they get back to it and they can, you know, start racing. Um, we do that and we contrast it later with saying controllers down. Uh, uh, before saying controllers down, we give them a little time, a little like lead time, and we're going to say 30 seconds until controllers down, 20 seconds until, 10 seconds until, and then controllers down. And we talk to the kids afterwards and say, which do you prefer? And you know, inevitably we get all the kids saying that they love it when there's a time. And why? Because they want it to be predictable. They want to understand what's about to come, what's about to happen, and that they have uh, a certain time frame to get themselves to a safe position, maybe, or to finish the big jump first, or to pick up their uh, their you know their little block and to get their special ability. Um, that they can kind of plan it out and practice, and that's huge for teens is to practice planning ahead, and uh, and so then we have that as kind of a learning experience. We ask them, you know, well, you know, you're playing your games at home. Would you rather have your parents say, uh, come down for dinner right now, or dinner's going to be in five minutes, and then maybe dinner's going to be in two minutes? And, of course, they're going to say, yeah, I want, the, I want my parents to be telling me that it's going to be in a few minutes. And um, so we have that conversation then with parents and help everyone kind of come to the same page that, you know, so some of the frustration of telling your kids to get off the video games is is not just because they're so zoned in and zonked on and just, you know, that they can't detach from it. It's actually just kind of common courtesy to say, hey, uh, we got to stop in like five minutes, you know. Okay, we got to stop in like three minutes. Just give them a couple of warnings and they can plan ahead and they'll prepare to detach. And it's it's a lot easier than just turning it off and, and you know, expecting um, expecting them to, to follow your, your every word. So... That'll be a, a just an example of an activity we'll be covering in um, uh, that video game week. And lastly, we have then just a, a few weeks on a couple more weeks rather on video games, um, violent video games. Should we be concerned? And video game addiction and online relationships. Well, we'll talk about that um, that uh, article I mentioned earlier from Nick Yee about uh, MMORPGs and online relationships and such, as well as their uh, kind of addictive gambling ish kind of nature. Um, and we have our closing discussions week, and we'll talk about uh, geek therapy activity that the students have been working on all semester and developing. What do you mean? So um, they have to develop their own, um, like using some of the tenets of, of geek culture then? Yes. Uh, one of the activities, that one of the projects the students will be completing is a geek therapy activity. Uh, well, they'll be developing an activity to be used in therapy that uses an artifact of geek culture that we covered in the course. Um, it could be about it could be for an individual format, family groups, anything like that. Um, they have to list all the materials that they're going to be uh, using for that geek therapy activity. Uh, they'll need detailed instructions on how to perform the activity, uh, a description of the client population that they think it's going to work with. So, you know, I see this working with um, with teen girls with eating disorders, or I think this would work well on an inpatient adult male population. Um, or maybe uh, 10-year-old boys with ADHD or something. And uh, lastly, a, a brief a brief explanation of what the results would be expected. Like, wh how do you expect this to work out? What What's a good case scenario? But contrast it with uh, some quick troubleshooting tips in case it doesn't go right. Uh, how do you think it might go wrong? And what would you recommend to somebody who is experiencing some of those troubles? Um, and students are going to have about 10 minutes of class time to present their geek therapy activities to each other. And, uh, and then per the permission of each one, you know, uh, students can always opt out of this part. But uh, I'm going to request that students provide like a one-sheet description of all those things I just described, um, a quick little summary, and that they'll put in a little binder and everybody will get a copy of it or a digital copy uh, in a Word document so that when students leave, that uh, if there's eight students in the course, they'll have eight geek therapy activities to take away with them that uh, that they can start using r as soon as the class concludes. You know that uh, I am very, very, very excited about um, 
what you're doing with this class. And that has to be the, the part that I'm most excited about. I can't wait to see what those students come up with. Yeah, no, I know. Me too. I love, uh, I, I mean, just even talking with students about this geek therapy idea, uh, having students come up to me and saying, hey, have you ever thought about this game? You know, like, and, and you know, it'll be a game I've never played. Um, like, for example, Munchkin. Um, I know it's a really popular card game. It's it's nothing I've played before, but I had a student in a recent semester who came up to me and told me all about the game and how great it is and how he has some clients who, who uh, enjoy playing it. And uh, and that's just like, I mean, just one teeny tiny tip of the iceberg example of, uh, of somebody who's already experienced a little bit of bringing like a, a certain card game into therapy. I want to hear more from other students who get creative with it and really kind of explore that process of coming up with an idea. Um, just as, as I thought of using comics and therapy, um, I mean, it's not like I created the, the idea, but as whenever the idea entered my mind um, and I thought I got to do this thing to, to, you know, get comics into therapy, um, there, I know that there are going to be other uh, students out there who are going to be thinking the same thing. And I want them to bring that to this class and to share it with other people. Yeah, that's my favorite part about doing the podcast. And really, that is the the focus of it, right? It's essentially at small scales and huge scales, uh, people doing exactly that, just taking, you know, all this stuff that we love and applying it to to help other people. It's just fantastic. I love it. And something else I'm really excited about is the presentation that uh, the presentation project that the students will be working on, that uh, the geek therapy activity comes at the end of the semester, but the presentations will be kind of staggered throughout the, the, the entirety of the semester. Um, this presentation is is going to be where uh, a, a student is going to pick a fictional character um, that is is not listed in, a, in an appendix. A certain list I have in the syllabus. It's like all the big characters of of you know geek culture. It's got Luke Skywalker, Superman, Batman, Spider Man, all that stuff, um, and uh, Wonder Woman and 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 whatnot. Some video game characters too. So they've got to come up with one that maybe is a little niche, right? Something that's maybe a little bit more like a really cool character, but maybe isn't as popular. Basically, the 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 idea is the character that the, the student really loves and wants other people to know about. So they're going to get 20 to 30 minutes to discuss this character's origin, the, the, the character's experiences portrayed in literature and whatever other media that, that um, they're found in, and their relevance to geek culture. So the idea is that I want students to increase the, uh, the breadth of the geek therapy vocabulary of their, their peers, right? I want students to come in and say, have you heard of this character? Um, one student had mentioned to me once that uh, he really wants to do a presentation on Cable, that he thinks he's a really cool character from the X-Men and, and uh, wants to go into his origin. So using as, as an example, he can talk about Cable's origin. Um, what are some of the big stories, the big highlights of Cable uh, throughout, his, um, uh, throughout his life as a character, as well as what kind of population do you think cable would be best suited for what what kind of uh, what kind of people do you think would find cable story to be fascinating and might actually find and like what stories of cable would uh, would clients find strength or find interest and, and find value in in reading and learning more about um, essentially the the students will be uh, Students will illustrate the, the potential for the clients to connect with this character, um, share a story about how they can relate to the character and, and all that. So, um, uh, again, it's just a huge opportunity for students to say, I like this one character and I want to tell all you guys about it. I get like almost a half hour uh, roughly to talk about this character, their stories, why they're important, why all of you should read about this person or know about this person and use them in therapy or or be aware of them. So... This, so when I went through the syllabus week by week, you know, I touched on some of the, the big stories that we've all heard of for the past, um, you know, at, on the short end for Harry Potter, um, roughly 20-ish years, almost 20 years, uh, but going all the way back 75 years for Superman or even some of the myth stories that go back thousands of years. We're going to be looking at all of that. The, but those are the bigs, right? I want the students to have an opportunity to provide us with the littles too. Fill it all in so that when students are leaving the course, not only have they heard about all the stuff that they've already been hearing about, but they'll also discover new things that they didn't even know exist in the first place. I'm, I, I'm really pumped to see what, uh, what characters the, the students bring in for the presentation piece. 
And for our clients, I mean, whatever character is big for them is big for them, regardless of, of how popular it is. Exactly. Right. People could come in and say, you know what? I love Legion from X-Men. And smallish character who really doesn't get uh, uh, a ton of exposure, a ton of stories about them and, um, you know, over the years, but still is, has a really cool background, cool experiences and stuff. Um, and yeah, it's, it doesn't matter that, you know, somebody comes in saying, I love Legion. And as opposed to saying, I love Batman or I love Spider-Man, it doesn't matter how popular one is, just as you said, just the fact that they're connecting with it. So yeah, so something like that is all about increasing the vocabulary of, of people so they can know these characters a little bit more. Okay, and I guess the only other big part of the class that we haven't discussed is the, the character analysis paper. Mm -hmm. um, so two things. What, uh, talk a little bit about that. And second, why is it 40% of the grade? Um, I, I know I weigh things kind of oddly throughout my courses, but um, you'll notice, though, that um, there's no, uh, if you have the syllabus in front of you, that there's no um, page limit uh you know target page limit and that's partially why it's worth 40 percent of the grade so the character analysis paper is basically they the students look at that appendix list that i mentioned earlier that has all the big characters on it um i purposely made a list with with uh essentially really popular characters or kind of well recognized characters um to give them an opportunity to kind of look at these characters in depth um so again you got Batman, Batwoman, Batgirl, uh, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Storm, Rogue, Luke Skywalker, Bilbo Baggins, uh, Commander Shepard, um, uh, J.C. Denton or Adam Jensen from the uh, um, Deus Ex series of uh, video games, Lara Croft, Link. So uh, uh, I have tons of issues with that list, by the way. <laughs> longer, it could be shorter. Some yeah. aren't deserving. Some are well-deserved. So yeah. All of that, yeah. <laughs> but I got to make a list. So... Uh, I have this list of characters, and, and I ask students to take one of those bigs and uh, uh, discuss uh, discuss that character in depth in, in, a, uh, in a psychological way. So um, they'll be using their theoretical orientation of choice. So students who come into this course will have declared a theoretical orientation. And in psychology, what that means, in, in, at least in uh, clinical psychology, is to say, um, I'm humanistic or existential or I'm psychodynamic, like I'm a Freudian or Neo, you know, I, I like the Neo-Freudians and stuff. I, uh, uh, I'm CBT, cognitive behavioral therapist, um, or systems. So students come in already kind of primed with taking courses and, and learning more about that track and the, that way method of, of um, delivering therapy and conceptualizing their clients and understanding their perspectives and all that. So I ask my students to take one of those characters and apply the theory that you chose um, to uh, as your own orientation and basically apply it to that character. Um, so how does your chosen theory uh, explain the conflicts and experiences of, that, of the protagonist? Um, what client population do you think would best benefit from working with that character's available media? Um, what's the, the impact of the events of, in the selected media like on the character? So consider some of the stories that have happened, that have been told about that character how they've influenced that person to become who they are. So they'll look at those stories and, and to determine how the, the stories have influenced that character and kind of treat them like a client in a way um, from, that, from that perspective. Use your theory that you're feeling comfortable with and you're getting into the groove of and apply it to that character and discuss them as if they were a client to you. Um, uh, what are some of the issues that would be brought up during therapy, for example, and how might you address them? So, uh, so it's a really kind of thorough look at at some of these characters, uh, and as I mentioned, yeah, and as as you mentioned, the uh, forty percent part um, is tied to the uh, no page limit kind of uh, piece. Inevitably, I have students who come up to me and say, you know, "How long do you think this should be?" And I may say something like, "Well, I think you'd be doing the character a disservice by only writing like seven pages." I mean, like you, I mean, what could you do? You talk about someone like Batman. He's been around 74 years. He's had dozens of, uh, of titles over the years. He's been in, uh, in several movies. And, I mean, it's just endless source material about Batman and how many stories have been told, hundreds upon hundreds. Of, you know, I mean, several thousands of issues of comic books. I mean, there are there's so much you could write about Batman and you only want to write like seven pages on him. Um, likewise, for theoretical orientation stuff, um, how can you properly... 
conceptualize a character or a client or a person in just uh, in eight or nine pages. So, um, so I really want students to kind of get into the project and really to to kind of uh, fall in love with the idea of uh, of kind of playing with a fictional character um, that they like from that that uh, that list of of big characters, and uh, and take someone like Bilbo Baggins and and uh, and really kind of examine some of the material and, and see what would it be like to have him coming in and saying, I've got this issue and I need to talk to you about it. Um, so that's why it's worth 40%. It, I feel like if I say 12 to 14 pages, I'm going to get a ton of 12 page papers or I'm going to get uh, a bunch of, um, uh, sometimes uh, some students get a little bold and, and I'll get a bunch of like 15 or 16 page papers, but it's like putting a page limit down there just gives students a goal that they'll kind of write until they can't anymore and then they stop when it gets to that point rather i want i want some of the students who think they can do it in nine and to see how they take a challenge of something like that of like really you only want to do nine pages but i want students who really run with it and want to do 20 to go ahead and do 20 so uh that's why it's worth 40 percent. I'm, I'm anticipating students to really run with that project and to uh and to really spend a considerable amount of time and effort in um in getting into the mind of of one of those characters, I know it's very popular right now for psychologists who write books um, where they psychoanalyze characters and they kind of try to describe their behavior, and um I that that's never been very attractive to me as far as um as like entertainment for for reading, mm-hmm. but I think that at this stage and and for students, I think it has the same effect that um that what we're talking about for our clients because if any of these characters really resonate for for um the students and these future clinicians they can see like they probably know one of these characters if they're really really um a fan they know that character better than they'll know a lot of their clients because there's so much history and so much information available right exactly so it's a great exercise to really um get your, you know, apply what you know um, in this context. And I think it serves as a great example then also to, you know, to think about how you could use that um, with your clients. Mm-hmm. So, so good job there. Thank you. Yeah, if you, can, if you can pick apart the psychology of a fictional character, I mean, we're going to be, you know, the, these, these students are going to be doing it with real people, of course, on a daily basis. If students can connect with uh, with these fictional characters and, and psychoanalyze them, if, if psychodynamic is their is their orientation or or, if, or not, and they do something else, if they can get into the minds of these fictional characters, it would work very well to help them to understand how others can relate to that character and help them to understand um, some of the stories and recognize some of the stories that could potentially have a great impact on their clients who come in maybe telling similar stories or. Um, you know, having, uh, uh, for example, you know, a client saying that I, I, I feel like, of course, the client wouldn't say this, but I have anxiety because um, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm never able to be myself. That I'm always trying to satisfy other people, and and I worry that my life is kind of escape is getting away from me. Um, being more familiar with Batman and having read several, um, you know, of course, several stories over the years. Uh, one set that stood out that I have in the Comicspedia database is the Mud Pack from the 80s, a little four-issue set where uh, Batman battles uh, the Clayfaces, all four of them. Uh, sort of like one is kind of just not really there, but uh, he battles several K- Clayfaces, and as as villains, these guys are all about like assuming somebody else's identity or using their kind of malleable form, their their kind of uh, squishy form to uh, to to hurt others. And uh, but the idea there is that especially with one one clayface in particular who can um, change uh, uh, change uh, appearances and to even absorb like use the the powers of of other heroes and other beings that they uh, change to that uh, Batman has to keep kind of on his toes about uh, who this person is being and becoming as they're changing identities and here's a piece where. Uh, we have some anxiety Batman, we have some identity stuff in the villains, and they're kind of clashing here. And it worked really well in this case with this client. And uh, I have, actually have a blog entry where I detail that and how I was able to um, change his perspective of therapy and what he should be getting out of the time and, and how he could be examining some of these issues on his own in, in a unique way. Um, so yeah, if you can really get into one of these characters, you'll know these stories and you'll be able to more... Uh, accurately bring them in and, and more help 
be able to help others basically with uh, uh, with um, you know greater surgical precision. Right. So this is this is just one course. I mean, uh, we talked about a lot of stuff that's going to be covered, um, a lot of ground to cover in this one course. And I know that you and I will have tons of conversations about this course and and future things in the future, right? Um, Later this year, I'm giving a, a presentation to other clinicians. So these are people who are already graduated and licensed, and it's going to be on gay culture, embracing gay culture and therapy. So I'll be doing it very differently, but um, but we'll definitely be touching base uh, about this because this is something that we both agree is really relevant and important information to share. And people who, who want to learn it, um, I hope it, it becomes more and more available. So um, you and I will be in touch. And uh, if other people want to learn more about the class or want to touch base with you or, you know, just compare ideas, um, where can they reach you? Yeah, so you can find me at comicspedia.net. That's C-O-M-I-C-S-P-E-D-I-A dot net. Uh, on my website, I have a, a contact form. Real simple, real basic, just, uh, you know, name and email and then comments, whatever it is. Uh, so just go to comicspedia.net and you can you can get in touch with me there. Learn more about my blog, uh, the Comicspedia database. That's that's the best place to get to to get a hold of me there. Yeah, and in the show notes for this episode, we'll post the syllabus and the reading list and all the information um, that we covered in this episode. So thank you, Dr. O'Connor, for coming back on the show. All right, thank you for having me. Glad to be back as always. And for more information on geek therapy, visit geektherapy.com or follow us on Twitter at geektherapy. Thanks.